Good morning. I'm going to ask that before we get started, I want to pray for us one more time. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, to you all hearts are open and all desires are known. God, we, Father, we have gathered in this place to sing your praises, to, to worship you, to glory in the gospel um, that you have done for us in sending your son to this earth to die for sinners. As we approach this weighty topic of Christ's temptation, we recognize that we are stepping into holy things. I myself recognize how unworthy I am, knowing that I am but dust, knowing my heart, knowing my, my sin, for us to approach this. And so God, if there is to be any change, if there is to be any power, we are totally dependent upon your Holy Spirit coming among us now. God, would you exalt your Son? May he be ever beautiful to our eyes. Father, there are saints in here today that might feel like they're being crushed under the weight of sin. And there are saints in here for whom Mark is right to say that there is thorns growing among the good word of your, the good seed of your word. Father, we are a weak people. We are a sinful people. And we ask that you would use this word, this glorious word, to transform our hearts, to raise our eyes to you, to loosen Satan's hold on our hearts. We ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will be considering chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, that's on page 1499 of your Pew Bible. Um, I'm using an ESV. If it sounds a little weird, no one's playing a practical joke on you. While you're turning there, um, my name is Jared Poulton. I am the pastor of children and families here at First Baptist. I do want to give everyone happy Father's Day. Do something very fatherly. Go eat a steak. Go play golf today. Also with Father's Day, we usually have a lot of visitors who come in. So if this is your first time from me, thank you for being here. We're really excited for you to be here. This might, sound, this might seem really weird if this is your first time in a church building. People coming together, singing songs. I'm going to open up this book and we're going to talk about it. But we gather as Christians believing that God has revealed himself in his word. And so what we're doing right now is we're going to look at this passage of scripture. And we're going to say, we're going to consider what it has to bear and what it has to say for us today in our lives. Please follow along with my, as I read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him 
all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came, were ministering to him. So what we have in this passage is quite remarkable, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is being led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the devil. Now let's consider some context to help us place our foot here a little bit better. Right before this passage, John the Baptist appeared, and he was preaching about the coming of this kingdom, the kingdom of God, saying it was at hand. And how he was preparing people was by baptism, by them repenting of their sins and putting themselves in the state of expectation for one who was to come. So John's baptizing Jews in the Jordan River, and Jesus himself comes to be baptized. You can see that in Matthew chapter 3. But it's important to see that Jesus' baptism is actually an act of coronation. The Father and the Holy Spirit declare that this is the king of a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now to understand what's happening here as well, you have to contrast the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world in the broader story of Scripture. Go all the way back to the beginning. God created man to live in a right relationship with him in the garden. But man rebelled against God and was cast out of his presence. After the fall into sin, the whole world becomes part of what's known as the dominion of darkness. Colossians 1.13, if you're interested in looking at that further. Now this kingdom of the world has a king, a ruler, an evil one. He is the prince of the power of the air from Ephesians 2.2. He is the ruler of this world from John 12.31. And he is also the god of this world from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And Jesus came to earth to establish a right relationship again between God and man. It was a rescue mission for sinners, but it was not just that. It was also an invasion the kingdom of heaven, led by its king, was crashing into the kingdom of this world. So it is fitting then that right after Jesus' identity as the Son of God is revealed, and everyone knows why he is here, that he goes into the wilderness and fights the rule of this world, Satan himself. But also, in the wilderness, Jesus' experience becomes very personal for you and for me, because he is being tempted. He is undergoing human temptation just like you and just like me. If you want a quick definition of temptation to write down or just to have something to work with while we work through this passage, a temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that draws a person from obedience to God into any sin in any degree. Let me say that again. A temptation is anything, state, way, condition that draws a person from their obedience to God as he has revealed into any sin or any, to any degree. Now, why is this important? Because you and I are born into this world as sinners. We have wrong thoughts, misplaced desires, we commit sinful actions. You and I struggle with sin 
and we are tempted and often fail miserably. Let's just take a closer look at our spiritual anatomy real quick. The Bible says that humans are unified persons of body and soul, but the core of every person is their heart, the seat or the throne of, their, of three things, their thoughts, desires, and actions. The Bible uses the word heart to represent all those things, people doing things or thinking things or feeling things. Now, we are created, Adam was created, the first man, with the ability to either please God or rebel against him. But when Adam sinned, everything changed, and that every human heart is now hostile to God and his ways. The sinful heart produces now sinful actions, thoughts, and desires regularly. If you want more on that, Matthew 7, 17 through 20. Sin itself has a timeline. I'm pulling this from James 1, 14 through 15. If you want to write that down too. James 1, 14 to 15. You have the sinful heart with the sinful thoughts, emotions, actions, desires. And then a temptation comes. Temptation comes. It provokes the heart to respond sinfully. And after that sinful action is then committed, the Bible says that sin ultimately leads to death. Spiritual death. Now, if you're here today... And if you do not believe in Jesus, this is a little bit of bad news for you. Because this process of temptation from desire to sin to death is unacknowledged and instantaneous. And that is how you make decisions, how you respond to things in the world, and what happens around you. Two verses real quick. 2 Peter 2.19 For whatever overcomes a person, this model, to that he is enslaved. John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, if you're a Christian, though, things are a little bit different. The dominion or the reign, that, that unacknowledged, instantaneous nature of our sin is broken, but sin is still in our hearts, so we are still prone to temptation. And that's the battle in places like Galatians towards the end, between the spirit giving us new life and the flesh producing sin and death within us. So while you and I are still on this earth, we continue to face temptations that want to and have the ability to destroy our souls. Every sin left unchecked wants to mature to its fullest capacity, which is death. Temptations within and temptations without are trying to grab this foothold in our life Not only do we have this battle with temptation, there is an enemy, and he's very clear in this passage. He's been in the business of tempting people for a long time, since the beginning of the world. As one um, Puritan puts it, Satan's power in tempting appears by the long experience he has in the acquired art. Satan has gained much experience by being so long versed in the trade of tempting. He has been watching humans for centuries. So, if you are not convinced by this assessment, or you just want one example, sadly, this is a very easy one to pick. But just think of the temptation right now that is ruining our culture in pornography. Here's some statistics for you. Barna, Barna, the research group, did some research in 2014 and said that Christian, for Christian pornography usage, 64% of Christian men view pornography once a month. If you think about 
those who would confess and then be Christians, and then those who would then go to Barna and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, 64%. Now that ranges depending upon how old you are. Let's get younger for those who are concerned about the next generation. Among 18 to 30-year-olds, 79% of American men and 76 of American women view pornography once a month. What scares me as a father and as a children's minister, 90% of boys have been exposed, exposed to pornography by the age of 18, and 60% for girls. The average age of first exposure is 11. 11 and it is sadly dropping. So behind pornography is a $4.9 billion industry that literally profits off of offering temptation, and it markets, it uses Twitter, it uses social media, tries to sell things to you. It markets off of your sinful indulgence. We live in a day and age in which temptations are abundant around us and then within us. There are so many things that are trying to pull our hearts away from God and to things of this world. But the good news is that in this passage, we see Jesus as the one who is victorious over the temptations of the evil one. And in his victory, he exposes to us the tactics of temptation everywhere. I think that's the main point. If you want to write down a main point real quick that we'll use to guide our passage. Jesus is the perfect man who overcomes temptations of the evil one. And his victory exposes to us Satan's universal tactics in temptation. So Jesus is the one who overcomes the temptations of the evil one. And his victory exposes to us Satan's tactics that he uses. If you look at each of the temptations, it's really interesting. They expose a different principle, I think, that how Satan targets the human heart. And these things are universal to all of our temptations. And those are going to be the three points of our sermon, if you want to write those down. A test of desire, a test of trust, and a test of worship. Again, a test of desire, a test of trust, a test of worship. Tactic number one, a test of desire. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism to undergo a 40-day fast. If you're not familiar with the practice, fasting is the practice of abstaining from food for some sort of spiritual purpose, usually accompanied by prayer and meditation. Now, it's important to link Jesus' fast with the first temptation. Remember his position as the God-man. He is God, independent of creation and self-sufficient, yet he experiences the limitations of humanity in his flesh. It is ultimately a mystery to us. So after 40 days of not eating, he's going to be pretty well spent. I'm not a doctor, but I know if I don't eat for 40 days, I'm not going to look good after a while. But Jesus undergoes this 40-day fast to reveal the true nature of his devotion towards the Father in the face of his difficulty. I think that's important. Because it points to a principle that's true for all of us. Trials and challenging external circumstances reveal the true nature of our hearts. I mean, I don't know about you, I sometimes can't go two hours past eating without getting grumpy. I sometimes get hangry. Some of you guys are already grumpy because it's too close to lunchtime. Or I become irritable when I'm too thirsty, or it's too hot. I still don't know why Georgia is so hot. 
or why all of you guys would stay here during the summer. It's my first Georgia summer and I'm already melting. I'm melting right now. But it's not when everything is really going perfect and you're riding a spiritual high that you really get an accurate representation of yourself. But it's when you're challenged and it's when you're tested that your true thoughts and desires are revealed. So, quick point, if, you're, if you see in yourself like a sinful habit or reaction that rarely occurs but kind of just pops up, you can't really brush that off from a biblical perspective. There's a root of sin there. So, for example, I'll be, I'll be personal, Father's Day. Parenting. You know, children test you sometimes. I'm not sure it's ever going to go away. Um, but if you think about, for, from my personal experience, I, I don't struggle with that outburst, I want to punch a hole in the wall type of anger. I'm more of that simmering that you turn the heat up after a while and then you just look at me and my wife looks at me and is like, Jared, you're angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry, but I am. So, but I struggle with that, that, that simmering that I have to watch myself. But I have been shocked at times when like, we're just doing something simple, like trying to put my daughter to bed. It seems like wrestling a cat sometimes. But we're trying to put her to bed, and I have this frustration or this anger boil up inside of me, and I'm responding sinfully to them. It's that type of thing that it's external circumstances expose what really is in your heart. So what Jesus does, though, in this fast is he actually stacks the deck against his physical body so that his victory over Satan is even greater. Because after 40 days of not eating, he truly shows his devotion to the Father, that he values obedience to the Father over his physical condition. He was not just having a good day. He was at his physical end, yet still victorious. So Satan uses Jesus' hunger as the target of his first temptation. If you're the Son of God, he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, don't let that phrase, Son of God, pass you too quickly. Remember Jesus' baptism. What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, Jesus, you're the Son of God, right? You know, why are you hungry? Your Father forgetting about you? You know, you've been out here 40 days. Has he forgotten about you? Does he forget you're the God-man? That you need some food? I know you can do it. Why don't you just make yourself something to eat? It's a sly temptation, isn't it? Satan plays into both his identity as God and man. As man, he's the son of God. Is this how God treats his sons? Leaving them in the wilderness without food? And as the God-man, Satan plays into his ability to provide for himself. Jesus, just, just make yourself something to eat. In modern day, hey, just run to Kroger. Two bucks, grab a loaf of bread, you're fine. But it's even more subtle than that. Jesus, don't listen to God. Listen to me. God has revealed in his word everything that is sufficient for us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Yet Satan always speaks a different word. And sin is always listening to and following a different voice than God's and what he has said for you in his life. In this situation, let's look at it a little closer. 
God hasn't provided food for Jesus, right? Jesus is tempted to act outside of God's will by tapping into his divine attributes, but it would put him into direct opposition against God, and he'd be listening to Satan. Actually, Satan would then take over the role of the Father in Jesus' ministry. It's right that Jesus wants food when he's hungry, but it's not right in these circumstances for him to bypass the will of the Father. The crux of the temptation is what rules his heart. Will he submit to the Father or will he fulfill satisfied hunger for food? And this takes us to the heart of the first temptation, a test of desires. Part of what it means to be human is that every person is created with desires, affections, things that we find valuable, good, and worth pursuing. God created us with this hardwiring to enjoy his world and himself. And all of our desires are supposed to flourish, or they were designed to flourish, as the desire to glorify God sits on the throne of our hearts. You and I have tons of desires. It's Father's Day. I would love to be in Disney World right now. I have some digestional issues. I can't eat bread or dairy. I miss pizza. My friends might know me. I love books. I want more books. My wife cuts me off from buying too many books. I wish I could drink coffee all the time. I used to manage a Starbucks. I went from Starbucks coffee free to an office Keurig. Will keeps trying to buy us coffee, like fancy ones, but it's not quite doing it. It's okay, Will. I appreciate the effort. I mean, I miss my coffee. So we have these desires, example, sometimes silly, but we have these desires, but then we have ruling desires, the ones that sit on the top of the priority of our hearts. So pleasing God ought to be every Christian's ruling desire. And then after that, fulfilling the responsibilities is given to you. Spouse, if applicable, family, church, job, school. But often, the thrones of our hearts are ruled by other desires. This can look like two things. We sin by desiring things we ought not to, by saying that we will be satisfied, find valuable, enjoyable, worth having, that we ought not to, like in the example of pornography, or we wrongly order our desires so that what ought not to be as high of a priority is not in the right order. And so we sin in one of those two ways. Here's a really practical example that I struggle with, going back to the parenting, Father's Day, here you go. If God's giving you children, he's giving you the stewardship of parenting these children as one of your top priorities, but you might neglect that priority if you find yourself pursuing other ends, leisure, social media, sports, overworking your job. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're neglecting that God-given responsibility for you to parent your children because you're being distracted by other things like career advancement, not to say it's necessarily a bad thing, but once those start to hit and what God has said for you gets trumped by what you want, it's an example of you having mixed up desires. So the question for you and the question for me is this. What do you desire? What do you want? What do you want that God has not given to you? What do you want that God has said is not good for you? 
What desires have you allowed to become ruling in your life that you prioritize over pleasing God in your relationship with Him? What are the responsibilities? Could it be relationships? Could it be leisure? Pleasure? Escape? Just, just watch your life. Does your relationship with God have that priority it ought to? You can look at your calendar, look at your checkbook. Does your desires match God's desires for you? The things of this world are great gifts, but they're terrible masters. You know, desires can also grow in communities too. If you have enough people hanging around together for a while, you guys all start to adopt the same desires. You guys like the University of Georgia, most of you. I don't know why Clemson's a better color or orange is a better color. But if you consider our church, First Baptist Dublin here, or whatever church you're a part of, as an organism that's living with its programs, events, things we talk about from up here, things we don't talk about, what we find valuable, what we don't find valuable, what would it say about our corporate desires? Do we even desire things that God said we ought not to desire as a church? Or are they misplaced? What is Jesus' response? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Physical life, hear this, physical life might be dependent upon food, but I promise you, true life is found in God's word and his revealed will in the gospel. God has given you everything in his son that you might need. Please, Christian, why this is important is that what ultimately is ruling your heart shows whether or not you are submitted to King Jesus. Let his word rule your desires. Do not jeopardize your soul's destiny because of that which is temporary. Do not live the life driven by sinful desires to die eternally. Let me say that again. Don't live the life driven by sinful desires to die eternally. So after this temptation, Satan leads Jesus to the top of the temple. And our verse picks up in verse 5, our text. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. This might seem like an odd temptation for us, right? Jesus, jump off the temple. Now, unless you're a bit of a daredevil or just like to or have this desire to throw yourself off of high structures, this doesn't seem very tempting, does it? I think God created us to live on the ground. I'm going to stay there. I'm fine with that. But what's going on in this temptation? It is a test of Jesus's trust in the Father. Tactic number two, a test of trust. So Jesus as the God-man is totally dependent upon the Father and the Spirit in his earthly life. He only does what the Father commands and is filled with the Spirit. Now, if you know the story of Jesus' life, there is a leap of faith, as it were, coming. He came to the earth to do one thing, to die on a cross. That's its end goal. It is the ultimate act of submission to the Father. 
But Jesus has to trust the Father to ensure that his death will not be his end and that he will be raised from the dead. You can see this in how the New Testament uses Psalm 16, 8 and 11. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let my soul see corruption. So what does Satan suggest? Jesus, we know that you are a man, son of God. Are you sure you can trust the Father? Are you sure he will protect you? I mean, we can test him here right now. If he has a plan for you, see if this will work. Jump off the temple and see if God has you. Because if he won't catch you here, how do you know he'll catch you when it counts? What's Satan's lie? Are you sure you can trust the Father? Let's figure it out right now. And Jesus sees right through it. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. So friends, another dynamic of all sin is that it actually tests the genuineness of our faith and our trust in God. A few ways this looks. Does your life show that you trust God's providence? What's happened in your life? Do you struggle with bitterness or doubts about the circumstances he put you in? I know today is Father's Day. Um, Sadly, Father's Day isn't a happy day for everyone. Does your life also show, second, that you trust God's law, his revealed will? Do you see it as good for you? Do you think that you might even know better than God? Or on the flip side, you actually can have a sinful trust in God, which is really interesting. You can play on temptation or play with temptation and bank on his grace. So spiritual laziness towards temptation is actually how we can trust God. We can test God. You play with sin by banking on putting God's faithfulness against his holiness. And while there is no temptation which is common to man, 1 Corinthians 10.13, spiritual apathy towards sin and temptation does not always guarantee that he won't just let you pursue what you want. Romans 1 tells us that. So friends, temptation reveals whether or not our Christian faith is based upon a genuine trust in God or whether it just masks a heart that views himself or herself as God. Going to our last temptation, Satan leads Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the nations of the world in their glory. and He goes all in. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Tactic number three, a test of worship. Now, saying when he says all these I will give you, he doesn't have ultimate authority over the nations. God has that. But he has a moral authority. He's the ruler of its world. As all of humanity is rebelling against God, he is the chief rebel leading their rebellion and governing over the chaos that ensues in humanity. But Satan is willing to give all that over to Jesus if he does one thing, if he worships him. Now, why would Jesus want to do that? Remember the purpose for why Jesus came. He took on flesh, going back to the kingdom of God imagery, he took on flesh to establish a kingdom over the nations of the world. What Satan actually tells that he'll give him is what the end goal is. 
But Satan offers him another path to the same goal. Because if Jesus worshipped Satan, he could bypass the suffering and reach the same end. He would have his kingdom and avoid the cross. Jesus, we both know why you're here. You're going to the cross, I know. I mean, we can make it easy for you. Let's just skip the public humiliation, desertion, whippings, crucifixion, death. I'll give you the nations. Here, right now. Here we are. You just have to do one thing. Bow down and worship me. Satan would have his heart's desires that God might worship him. Jesus would get the nations, but not as a savior, but as a dictator. And he would avoid the cross. Trinity, the Father would be dishonored. Trinity would kind of be sent into chaos. And you and I would have Jesus, but he would be our dictator, our master, versus our savior. And you and I would be dead in our sins. Jesus gets this. He says, Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Every time that, Satan, that Jesus says no to Satan, he's taking another step towards the cross. The end of all temptation is ultimately about worship. Your worship and my worship. There is this intrinsic connection between what we worship and whether you are obedient to God or are pursuing sin. Worship of God is connected to submission because sin is actually an act of worship. You are ascribing worth. You are glorifying. You're exalting something in the place of God. If you struggle with the idea of worship, let me give you three other words. What do you trust? What do you love? What do you fear? Trust, love, and fear are biblical words that express a heart of worship in action. Well, we were all created to worship and describe glory to God, which manifests itself in trust, love, and fear. Now, we give glory in our sin to the creature rather than the creator. So whatever you trust more than God, you are worshiping. Whatever you love more than God, you are worshiping. Whatever you fear more than God, you are worshiping. So many, if you just run through the Ten Commandments, those are actually acts of worship which God is saying no to. Adultery, pornography, other things like gambling, lying, stealing, coveting, drunkenness, things even today like drooling, excessive worship. You are trusting, loving, and fearing something else other than God. And the Bible uses this language. 1 Samuel 15:23 is not rebellion like the sin of divination. In Colossians 3.15, and Paul is at all these things that we're not to do. And he gets to the end and he says covetousness, and I think he groups the entire thing, and he says, which is idolatry, which ultimately ties back to our worship. Two more ways about the nature of this temptation that I want us to see real quick. First, notice what Satan is willing to give up for worship. He's willing to give up everything that he has so that Jesus would worship him. And he uses the same tactic with us all the time in us redirecting our worship away from God to other things. What is the price of your worship? What if you receive 
will cause you to transfer your worship away from God? Or what if you lost would prove that your faith is faulty? Remember Job. He honors you because he has stuff and he is healthy. Take it away and he'll curse you. I don't have time to go into this, but Proverbs 37 through 9, if you want to write that down, it's this description where a man basically says, don't give me too much, don't give me too little, that my heart might turn away from you. Satan has his checkbook out and his pen ready to write the checks that will steal our worship away from God. If I was honest with myself, and if you were honest, what would it take for us to give it all away? In the same way that Satan wants to prevent Jesus, going to a second part of application, he wants to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. This is really important. He wants to keep our Christianity crossless. He is fine with Jesus. You see that? He but not crucified and resurrected Jesus. When Jesus gives up his identity and he confesses himself in Matthew, Peter comes up to him and he says, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer and die. Peter says, not, we're not going to do that. What does Jesus say? Get away from me, Satan. So Satan's end does not necessarily mean that Jesus would go away. He is fine with Jesus being present on the earth, but under his rules and worshiping him. And I think, sadly, he is fine also with our churches and our denominations. As so long as we stay away from the gospel and keep our Christianity crossless. I've used the term, let me summarize real quick. The gospel is the good news that after God created everything in his image and he created us for relationship with him, we rebelled against God, but he sent his son to the cross so that anyone who looks in him, repentance and faith can believe in him. Friend, if you're here today and you do not believe that message, it is available for you. Please come talk to me or any member here and we'd love to talk to you about that. The message that's at the core of the Christian faith and discipleship is this gospel. And so Satan's main tactic is to get Christians to stop believing, stop picking up their crosses, and stop following Jesus. And then it starts with disciples, and then it spreads throughout churches. In this passage, Satan also has a deal for us, First Baptists. We can keep our buildings, programs, Community, budget, Satan would say. But just don't talk about Jesus. Don't mention the cross. Don't talk about or really address sin. You can, you can keep your church. Sure, I, I like this building. You can keep your church. Just make sure it's a crossless church. Satan's desire for our church is for it to be crossless. A church drifts into this crossless or gospellessness Whenever the purposes in the center of a church, everything it's supposed to order around, that holds its members together, and it drifts into something else. A, go- a crossless church does not base its ministries in the power of the gospel, or even loses its function to equip saints because it's drifting into other things. So friends, I'm over the children's ministry. The only hope that I have, that I will have an eternal difference in these kids' lives, hear me, is that I get them to somehow see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel that is out for them and their need for a Savior. And as they grow up, that they would see this is more valuable than anything else the world will give to them. And if I focus too much 
on games or fun or program. I don't really know what I'm doing. A crossless church is a church which does not preach Christ week in and week out so that sinners can walk in and walk out and not know how to be saved. It is a church of people who come together to be served and participate rather than to serve others in worship. And they, they show that they desire and they glorify to, to glorify Christ is the last thing that they want to do. It's a church where the gospel becomes blurred or muddied to the point that people can just join and they're not actually saved. Because churches are covenanted communities of regenerate people. It is a church which doesn't call Christians to take up their cross of self-denial and allow sin to run rampant and unaccounted for among its members. Satan's desire, church, is for us to become numb to the gospel, to lose what the Bible says, the power unto God for salvation. The gospel and the resurrection is the lifeblood of a church. If we lose this, Christ is not preached in this pulpit. He's not worshipped on Sundays. He's forgotten in the classes. He does not live in our hearts, and eventually the spiritual life of a church dies. Church, let us never forget the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast to it. It is our only hope. Let this gospel power flow through our churches that we might treasure Christ more than anything else in the world. Let us be a church of true, born-again Christians who pick up their cross and die to ourselves daily. Church, let us not become a crossless church. Jesus in this passage is victorious over the devil's temptations. Yet his earthly trial is not over, is it? He goes to the cross and he suffers for your sin and my sin and dies Yet he defeats Satan and death. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. While we spend a lot of time talking about sin and temptation, and while you might be discouraged, the only hope in what we have in the gospel, and the only way that we have victory is through the cross and the empty tomb. This passage does not merely show us how to defeat temptation. It points us to the power available for us over sin and death. We do not leave this passage to go venture off and to go fight the battles of sin and temptation on our own. We can have victory over sin and temptation and have confidence we will be victorious because of Jesus. He is the victorious one over sin and death. When he rose from the grave, he broke the power of sin and temptation, has over his saints. And when Christians believe in this gospel, the power falls off. We have spiritual life. The Holy Spirit's inside of us, and we can have victory over sin. If you live a life and you don't think you can have victory, it is available to you in the gospel, in the cross of Christ. We still battle against flesh and blood and the devil, but we tap into Jesus' power, which gives us new life. Brother and sister, are you struggling with any particular sin? Are you under the relentless burden of temptation? Come to Christ. 
John Owen once said, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. And if you are trying to refocus your battle against temptation, to fight against sin for the eternal destiny of your soul, begin at the cross with this. Confess you are a sinner and trust in his work on your behalf. Friend, if you have moved far past temptation and you have taken sin, hook, bobber, and you're in a dangerous place, you need to repent. Turn to Jesus and his grace is available for you. If you're not a Christian, you're not living the life that God has designed for you to live. You are a slave to sin and its desires, but God wants to offer you abundance of life. He wants you to be free from slavery. And I would love to talk to you today what that looks like. I want to leave us with nine really rapid fire points. I know my time is up. Um, but if you're struggling with temptation, let me give you just nine tips real quick. Begin with the gospel. Start with what Jesus has done for you in your fight. Um, Romans 6 is one of my favorite passages to look at how Jesus' death frees us from the dominion of sin. You can't do anything without that gospel. Second, focus on the beauty of Christ more than your fight with sin. So all sin is rooted in the desires of your heart, but you don't defeat sin by looking at it and being hyper-focused on it. You defeat sin by finding Jesus more valuable, more satisfying than anything that sin can offer you. He is the one who put accomplishing his, your salvation over everything else. He is worthy of your worship. Three, use scripture. Jesus was well-versed in it. It's our, our sword against the devil. Four, separate truth from lie, which lies are at the bottom of all temptation. Identify the heart issues. That's exactly what I try to do in this passage. That sin is more than what's outside. It's what's in, in, inside of us. Consider the examples of scripture. They're written for you, written for you to look upon and reflect upon. Seven, lean into the community of faith. If you are struggling with sin, do not leave here right now without talking to someone about it and confessing. Please, it is the most powerful and life-giving thing you can do. Bring it into the light. Eight, consider radical amputation. Cut off things that are giving you an opportunity for sin. And nine, trust in Jesus to sustain you and go to him when we fall. He will hold us fast. He is working all things for your good. His throne is a throne of grace. Whenever you sin, pick yourself up, go to him in prayer, and trust him. A reformer once said, Let this then be a standing truth, that the whole strength of the godly consists in the grace of God. Friends, we are in a war. It might be tense. We might suffer setbacks. There are dark moments, but Jesus Christ is on his throne. He has defeated sin, death, and Satan. And one day he will put all things under his feet. Persevere, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God, if there's to be any power in your word, it's because of you. God, we are wholly desperate upon you to change us and work in us. And we thank you that while we are yet sinners and while we still sin, that there is grace available at the cross. Father God, would you change our hearts? Would you change us so that we would be more obedient to you? God, would you loosen Satan's grip on the hearts of those here? We are totally dependent upon you. We thank you that you've given us grace in the gospel. We anticipate when you put all things under your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.